0: How can B2B software companies leverage platforms and leverage existing tools to not reinvent the wheel there, to not get distracted from core product, but to still serve their customers with integrations well?
1: Welcome to UpTech Report. This is our Apply Tech series. UpTech Report is sponsored by TerraLeap. Learn how to leverage the power of video at TerraLeap.io. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my guest, Michael Zerker, who's based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and he's the CEO and co-founder at Prismatic. Welcome, Michael. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Now, Prismatic is an integration platform for B2B software companies. Help me understand, Michael, what was the problem that you saw in, in the marketplace and that have set out to solve?
0: Sure, you know, I think um Prismatic is a pretty classic case of of kind of scratching our own itch as co-founders in a way. i um you know I had previously had a startup uh, you know ran that business for about fifteen years or so and and we were in a in the public safety vertical market. so we served law enforcement organizations and and dispatch centers and things and and in that market, we had about six hundred integrations that we built to third party vendors in the ecosystem that makes up law enforcement and dispatch. and you know, by the time we had a, a couple thousand customers, that's obviously a, a significant burden. I guess I will say. Um, and so, you know, what we experienced over the the current course of our previous journey was, uh, you know, R and D resources were eaten up increasingly by these integrations. Implementations were slowed down. It was a big support burden. Uh, you know, and, and you know, many of you in the SaaS space can kind of probably connect the dots from there around all the challenges that come with with dragging something like that, I guess, along in your product. And so. You know, uh, truthfully, I, I never felt like we we kind of solved that problem to our satisfaction in my last business. And so, upon you know selling that company to it, we were still really stuck on this. Okay, so what about these vertical markets? Public safety being the one I happen to have experience with, where integration is a really key part of succeeding for your customers. And 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 how can how can B two B software companies, or in in our case B two G, I guess, how can B two B software companies Leverage platforms and leverage existing tools to not reinvent the wheel there, to not get distracted from core product, but to still serve their customers with integrations well. And you know, we had kind of tried to solve that problem every which way, uh, you know, over the course of my previous life, so to speak. And and this time started out and said, okay, so so what would happen if you built an integration platform whose sole purpose in life was to serve B two B software companies, kind of in that endeavor that I described, and. What we've learned since and what we've kind of learned along the way with our you know with customers and 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 just kind of working with the market is that public safety isn't unique. You know, I mean many, many, many vertical markets have this long tail of integrations that B2B software companies are saddled with.
1: You know you knew the problem intimately. I and, I, and I, I have the
0: scars, yeah.
1: <laughs> you have scars. So <laughs> you know this. And, and and you're so now focused on B2B software companies, because you're like, I was that, there's got to be others. And, and there's an explosion of, of SaaS solution oh, software companies. Yeah. And we're experiencing the same problem. You're you're just saying, oh, let me solve this issue that you have. So data integration, I mean, this this concept of, of combining multiple information from various sources. Let's just look at it for just for a second. For those of our viewers who aren't familiar with the concept, if you had to describe it to like a five-year-old, I have a five-year-old. So if you were to tell my son, like, this is what we do, what would you say?
0: I would say that uh, I have a six-year-old, so I'm going to translate to six-year-old since that's, I guess, what's on my mind. But um, you know, if what I would say is there, every business in the world at this point uses software as a key part of what they do, either tracking what they do or enabling what they do, or sometimes serving their customers directly with what they do. And and because software is so core to what businesses do now, and because businesses have more and more software all the time that software all has to get along and that software all has to ex- communicate well. And and that's a challenge because different people make each of those pieces of software. And so integrations are how that software gets
1: along essentially. Yeah, making sure that they talk to each other, talk nicely. That's right. Talk <laughs> nicely
0: and, and, and pass the right data, I guess.
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's like all the software has to go to kindergarten and learn how to play well together. Um, <laughs> this, this evolution now of tools of, to be able to integrate... The explosion of software tools it means there's just going to be only more and more and more. So the need for it is is so important. But you only focusing on on B two B integrations um, is that just because that's where you came from and you're like, let me just hone in on that. Is there that much of a difference between B two B integrations for versus B two C software integrations?
0: Yeah, I mean that's a super good question. I'm sure some of it is a is a bias to the problem that I innately understand, right? And there's no question that that's the case. But I think, I think additionally, I think, you know, B2B software tends to have a set of requirements um, around, I think, a higher level of service from an integration perspective, or at least a, a broader level of service than B2C does. Generally in B2B software, at least in my experience, you know, whoever's producing that SaaS or whoever's producing that software will, will build the integrations that are necessary as kind of a core part of the product. I think B2B is a little bit unique in that, compared to B2C, in that you tend to have solutions that do whatever they do in whatever niche of whatever vertical market they're in, where integrations become part of how you fit into the ecosystem in a different way than an integration that is like what the software does innately. So for example, in B2B, or I'm sorry, in b to c if what you do is provide uh, you know, social network, a social network app Clearly integrating to whatever is part of that is just a core part of the, the application. Whereas in B2B, if you're a field service app that, you know, that works in lots of different businesses, it might have to hook up, you know, connect to 25 different back-end ERP systems. And so you, you kind of end up with this thing where, like, yeah, you could build all of that natively, you could build all that as part of the product, but it gets unwieldy really fast. And I think you have a bit of a different dynamic just because of the way those markets work.
1: Mm. so it, it, it's the concept yeah is it core to your to your technology often b2c it will be so then just have your own developers build the integrations and make it embedded versus b2b you just need to have your integration marketplace that uh, this person may use one or someone else may use something different now almost all everything is cloud-based right everything now is i mean are most
0: applications are i think if you get into most vertical markets in b2b software you will find You will find plenty of non-cloud based software in the world still. Um, You know there are still mainframes running business critical systems in the world, right? And so, you know, I think you're absolutely right that startups are all building SaaS. Modern purchases of big B two B software are are almost exclusively SaaS. But we've got we've got at least a decade until you know the premise based systems are are mostly gone, and, and probably longer than that on the long tail.
1: Not everyone lives and breathes um, um, data integration tools and and love this concept, but I'm I am kind of curious a little bit. Like, do you know the history? Like, I, I, if you go backwards, I mean, just software sharing from one software to another piece of software. What's this journey been like of, of evolution of it?
0: Yeah, so I will give what is undoubtedly a very imperfect recounting of history, but it's uh it's it's what I know, I guess. So I mean, you know, obviously. As computers and you know mainframes and and then you know mini computers and on down the line became so prevalent in business, software became increasingly part of the the general business operation. And this happened all the way back to the you know the sixties, seventies, probably in some cases before. And and as systems proliferated, as you had more and more of them, they needed to start exchanging data. And I think in the you know in the simplest context, it's it's just basic data like. You know, we need, we need our customer database to be accessible in both our, both our CRM and our billing system or, or whatever, right? I mean, so, so you can see how it kind of started in a, in a really natural way. Well, very quickly, I think, you know, businesses decided, well, I don't want to have somebody type this into two systems. It'd be neat to exchange this data. And it, and it started super innocently, right? Like, we're just going to, all we're going to do is just when Michael Zerker signs up for our thing, you know, our phone business or whatever, we're going we're gonna to put it in two systems. This is great. Um, and integrations were born. And so, you know, that tended to happen in the enterprise part of the market, in the very large companies. And you can see why. There was the most to be gained by automating these processes in large businesses because there was the most volume in large businesses. And so going a long way back, you had businesses building integrations between, at the time, mainframe systems, and then, you know, kind of along the, the, you know, the development, I guess, of, of technology along the way, all the way to SaaS, you had large enterprises driving kind of the integration set of requirements and the integration expectations, and that was kind of solved in two ways. Either you know, let, let's talk about kind of the '90s and into the 2000s. If you're a big business and you buy a new ERP and you need a whole bunch of integrations to it, you kind of have two choices. You either get some kind of integration platform and build on that, or you hire Accenture or somebody like that and and have them build a multi-million-dollar custom set of integrations and both are probably completely reasonable expectations. I've never been in a fortune 500 business. I have no idea what the, what the right answer is, but that is the way the integration market grew up from my perspective. And so you have all these solutions that have existed for a long time. You know, you can go way back um, you know, but, but you have solutions like Informatica and Boomi and a little bit more recently, MuleSoft. And, and you, you have these tools that grew up to do exactly what I just described. If I'm a big business and I have a whole bunch of tools internally, how do I connect them all together? Mm. And then we had this revolution a while ago where, you know, tools like Zapier started existing and, and, the, and the plethora of things that are like Zapier. And they, they essentially said, well, it's, I mean, it's great that, that these big enterprises have all these ways to build things for multi-millions of dollars with giant staff. But, but what about the, you know, what, what I was kind of referred to as like the, the citizen integrator or the professional where like, I'm maybe not a software developer, but I, I know how to, I know enough about things to, to wire up my MailChimp account to my, you know, Salesforce CRM or whatever, right? And so, so Zapier and friends went and built really good ways to, to do a lot of that. What you're basically still doing the same thing. You're still integrating, you're in much smaller businesses, sometimes businesses of one, but you're but you're integrating tools that are used by that business essentially inside their own operation to, to tie them together, largely my CRM to my ERP, my ERP to my financial system, whatever. What has happened more recently, and, and what Prismatic is part of is the endeavor to say rather than focusing on either a very large business or a very small business integrating their own things, which is what I think most of the history of integration platforms is. Well, increasingly the expectation is on B2B software companies for all of that to exist out of the box. Mm -hmm. You buy a new financial software today. You just expect that it has integrations to concur and expensify and whoever else right out of the box. You just expect that you can go to an integration marketplace, click go, and it's going to be connected. You don't want to buy Zapier and connect them together. You don't want to buy anything and connect them together. You want it to just work. And so as that expectation has been pushed on to B2B software companies, in my, in my belief is that there's a, a, a big gap of in the integration platform space for platforms that are specifically focused on kind of the, the, the specific things that a B2B software company needs that are different than an enterprise needing to integrate their own things you know how do i integrate my product to my customer's ecosystem rather than how do i as an organization integrate my own things and it turns out those are pretty different problems in some ways and i think I, I believe this is one of the next kind of iterations of the integration space more broadly
1: it's almost like it's table stakes as a b2b software company that you have to have integrations and it's a lot of effort and time to so it's it's, it's amazing for me to just realize you know the explosion of software companies and now that there isn't even a space for someone to just manage the facilitation of information between all the software companies as, as in, in, in this additional whole concept. So when I look at, at your website, if we just talk about the product itself for a second, mm-hmm. um, what basically someone, a B2B software company could say, all right, you just manage it. We'll hook into you and then you'll take care of all the integrations and we just embed that into our solution.
0: So, you know, there are kind of a handful of ways to think about it, but, but I think it's, I think it's almost best to think about for, to start the conversation with what are we trying to accomplish in the end? And in the end, what we, what, what most of our customers want is they want a really simple marketplace like page in their app where their customer can go and say, I want to turn on QuickBooks and I want to turn on Slack and I want to turn on NetSuite or what you know, whatever the examples are. Click, 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 type in username, password off we go okay and so that that's where we're trying to get now if you look at everything it takes to get there you you get into a ton of detail i mean first of all you need to have the basic workflow for what we're orchestrating when an invoice gets made here then do this thing in some other system you know when a payment comes in then do this and at the same time message slack right and those can be very simple or very complex but you also need that workflow to be able to connect to all of these systems out there to NetSuite, to QuickBooks. And, and, and some of these systems, the ones I've mentioned, certainly, are these big SaaS platforms that are very common. And so a platform like Prismatic is already connected to them and already has you know what we call components that, that let you make those connections. But what happens in many vertical markets is in addition to that, well, you're also connecting to 14 tools that nobody in the world has ever heard of unless they happen to be in your industry, right? So in my previous life, I mentioned I was in public safety. We, we, we connected to... Um, probably 15 different brands of 911 phone systems. I think you've probably never heard a single one of those brands in your life. Like, and, it, and it doesn't matter, but but that's very much a thing, not just in the public safety vertical market, but in almost every vertical. And I've actually been surprised in the last three years that I've been doing this with Prismatic, how, ma- how many things I guess I've learned about how deep verticals that you wouldn't kind of imagine really are. And so anyway, as you think about what Prismatic needs to do, we need to provide that platform page or that, that marketplace page to turn on the integrations. Then we have to give you a way to build the workflows that connect all the systems and have, have all the logic, data mappings, if-then type stuff, whatever. But then if you kind of go back one level more, well, there has to be a platform this thing runs on. And it has to scale from, you know, you have to be able to deal with the fact that at midnight, your your customers might spike with a whole bunch of batch jobs overnight. And it has to, it has to just... It has to just work. Um, You know, you need to deal with the security ramifications of integrations. You need to deal with the um, how do you log and how do you detect problems? Because one of the challenges with integrations in a B two B software company is that very often when you get a support issue or somebody's upset that it's not working, it actually has has to do with the third party that you're connected to and not with you. And that's especially true in vertical markets. And so, how do we provide a platform that lets a B2B software company quickly identify where the problem is so that it's entirely possible they just need to go back to their customer and say, hey, you need to call Acme Inc because their API has been returning 401s for the last, you know, however long. Um, And so I think you end up with this really kind of broad platform, some of which is really customer facing and some of which is like the least sexy stuff in the world, but but is exactly what makes this work in reality. And and I think in a platform, you know, prismatic for sure, I think one of the interesting things about it is that probably the things that are the, like the the most innovative are also the the least sexy in a lot of ways. You know, they're the things you don't see. And, you know, one interesting thing about our customers is that almost by definition, if they want to, they can build this themselves. hundred percent of our customers are software companies. By definition, they can build software. I mean, they, they could do what we do. The kicker is it, it just so rarely makes sense for that to suddenly become your core competency. And so what we're trying to do is like take all the stuff that's, that's not sexy, take all the stuff that isn't going to be a differentiator for your customer, put that on us, and then the time that you spend on integrations as a, as a customer of ours as a B2B software company should be the stuff that actually differentiates your product in your market. And that probably isn't logging. And it probably isn't scalability. And it probably isn't yet another way to do OAuth 2 in a nice way, right? Like what it, what it probably is, is something that I will never understand because it's deep in your vertical market and, and, and you know, and, and knows you, you and your customer are the ones that know that. So that's really what we do is we take that stuff on from a platform perspective.
1: This, this uh, integration platform as a service, I pass. You, you fit into this, this category. Mm-hmm. But specifically, b two b software. It's just like that that exact category. Um, what What do you see as the complexity and and time factor for them to to use your product and start getting into it? You say once it's running, it's it's simple. But I mean, what's that process look like?
0: Yeah, so we actually view ourselves as embedded iPas. Certainly, we're part of the iPass you know segment, but but we we believe that there's a, A new segment of that market emerging called embedded iPaaS, which is, you know, take an iPaS and embed it in a B2B software, you know, SaaS offering. And so, you know, when you ask what it takes to get running with it, it it depends, of course, on on what exactly you're you're doing as as a company. But most of our customers will kind of do two things. First, they will build some of their integrations. They'll build the first integrations, the most important integrations to them in the platform. And that can be very easy or very complicated, depending on what those integrations are. If what you want to do is make a you know, message in Slack every time a new lead comes into Salesforce, well, yeah, that's going to be pretty easy, right? Drag and drop a couple things and we're good. If what you want to do is put a dot on the map in the right way when a 911 phone call comes in over a like RS-232 serial line, which is a real thing in the world today, that's going to be more complicated, right? And so I think it's a hard question to answer, but just from a, just from a like start building integrations, it's a very fast process, the second phase is embedding it in your product. And again, depending on exactly how deeply you want to do it, that can be more or less complicated, but we've done everything we possibly can to make that a really simple process so that you can essentially take our platform, embed the customer-facing parts in your product, and not have to build that stuff yourself.
1: Is it, is it meant for non-tech-savvy people or is it still meant for the developers inside the B2B software company use it?
0: Yeah, that's a super good question. So we believe that the people building the workflows should be ideally at scale business analysts or what I always kind of call like technical non-developers. They're technical people, but they're probably not writing code. That said, there are some parts of, of taking a platform like this and really weaving it into your market and weaving it into your product that are probably best done by developers. So for example, actually embedding the UX pieces from our tool into your tool, take a few lines of code and some developers probably going to do that. Um, You know, possibly building some of the more complex connections to the niche parties that you integrate with in your market. Like I mentioned, 15 different 911 phone systems or whatever, a developer may be involved in, in some of that orchestration at like the lowest level. But once that's done, then the developer can step back and the business logic and the workflow and the deployment and the management can happen without DevOps, without development. And so what we see is we don't believe that cutting developers completely out is the right answer. I mean, these are software companies. they have Their customers have high expectations about the experience and, and sometimes developers are just gonna be the best to shape that. But we believe developers should use the time they're going to spend on integrations at something that provides a lot of leverage so that the rest of the organization is essentially empowered by what the developer did to to build a whole bunch on top of it. And and I think our platform is really specifically designed to be something that developers really like to use because the pieces that they need to do are are clear and are built in a developer-friendly way. And what those do is enable the rest of the organization to do all the things, the 90% of the things that the developer no longer has to be involved in.
1: Would you categorize this as a developer tool?
0: Yeah, certainly. I think, you know, uh, you can probably divide our our product into kind of different segments and and certainly a couple pieces of it are purely focused on developers, built in a way that developers love is the phrase we use all the time. You know, how do you make this a thing that developers aren't going to dislike? Um, You know, that said, the actual low code builder, the actual like point and click deployment stuff, that's probably not used by a developer. And so, I think that I think in some ways the tool is a little bit segmented between the piece that the developers need to do and the piece that those kind of like technical non-developer integration specialists, business analysts, whatever you call them in your business, that that, that they're going to do.
1: Got it. For you, when you when you look at at this, what what year did you start?
0: We started um, two and a half years ago, so I suppose it would have been early 2019.
1: 2019. Okay, two two years in the adoption. Yeah. What, what's it been like when you start to to, to share this around, or people like, oh yeah, they get it immediately, or or do you think developers still want to keep it in house?
0: Oh, I mean, I think there's always a predilection to keep things in house as a developer. Uh, you know, I came up as a as a developer myself, and certainly understand uh, that predilection. I think it's terrifying to have something as mission critical as integrations are outside of your control uh, as a developer. And and I think one of the things that that Prismatic has worked. Super hard to get right, kind of since day one, is, is that experience. You know, how do you make this something that that doesn't leave developers feeling like they're going to end up cornered? Because it's so common that you, you know, this tool looks great in demos, it looks great in blogs, and then you, you know, you get you get 95% of the way and you hit a brick wall and there's no way around it, right? Like we, we want to do everything we can to let developers wherever it makes sense, get under the hood, extend it, make sure they don't get cornered. And then, and then let the rest of the organization build a lot on top of that. So, you know, certainly there's always going to be a, a, a big conversation in an organization around, does it make sense to have this be a dependency on a platform like Prismatic or is it something we should build ourselves? I think increasingly companies are, are very wise about investing in core product and they're very wise about offloading the things that aren't core. And I think, I think integration platform stuff is not core. I would argue that integration's, are generally, they're generally pretty important, but the platform on which they run probably isn't. And so, you know, I think over time, even in the couple of years that we've been doing this, I think that conversation has gotten just kind of easier in a, in a macro way. I think that the market is just moving that way, not just with integrations, but kind of with everything. Um, but from an adoption perspective, of course, we spent the first you know year um, building building a product from nothing, which means, you know, although we certainly had some kind of early customers that were really active and helped us a lot. I mean, it's not like on day one, you can go live with a giant integration platform that's mission critical, right? And so, you know, we spent that first year, about about a year, kind of building, um, you know, in stealth and, and got to the point that, you know, we had a couple of customers that were able to um, shape it and work with us. And um, it would have been just over a year ago that we kind of took our first enterprise customers live in, you know, what I would consider like a, a true production mission critical version one. And so since then, we've been much more broadly marketing it. Um, You know, we've kind of been in general availability for a little more than a year now. And adoption obviously picks up at the point that you start, you know, generally marketing it and and working with additional customers. So it's been a really exciting year in 2021 as we've kind of taken the like year and a half work, uh, year and a half of work we did in stealth and suddenly said, like, turns out we exist, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, getting into the market.
1: As you stated earlier, this is your second company. The first company you started, you were you were nineteen when mm-hmm. you first started.
0: That? I was. And yeah, you, I uh, you love it. it. Like
1: just easy for you to start a new one.
0: Uh, I mean, I, it's never easy. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I started my last company accidentally. Um, you know, I was a college kid, met a sheriff's deputy, didn't know any better, got to talking to him about software, and next thing I knew, fifteen years had passed, and I was in public safety software and was owned by private equity, right? So like that that was, not, that was not any kind of like premeditated path. Of course, along the way, we got more serious as we went. But I mean, it started as a naive 19 year old that didn't know any better. I, I think this time it's, it's, it's more interesting because you, you certainly, there's still an infinite amount that, that I, I didn't know and I still don't know today. But there are some things you know that I didn't know at 19. And so, you know, that, that has pros and cons. I think in startups, naivete is a really valuable thing in some ways. Um, You know, I often said, knowing what I knew, knowing what I knew at the end of my stint in the public safety market, if I had known that when I was 19, no way I ever would have started that company. Super fragmented market, terrible geographic concentration that made it really hard to grow, kind of a slow, very slow sales cycle because it was sales to government like I, I could, I could give you the 7,000 reasons not to get into public safety software. Um, and I could probably do the same with the integration market, right? Like there's a, it, it sometimes is nice not to know what you're doing because uh, you just get in there and, and, and do it. And so starting another company was really interesting. It was really interesting to be back at the beginning. Um, you know, I had, I think forgotten what the early days are like, you know, after 19 or I guess 15 years, um, you know, you're solving very different problems when you're, 300 employees or whatever with a couple thousand customers than you are when you're three people in a room with no customers. Um, you know, you, you go back to asking questions like, who is our customer and what do they maybe want? Like, I mean, it's, it's a very different, I think more different than I gave it, gave it credit for probably. And going back to the beginning was a really, really interesting experience and was challenging in some ways. But, you know, I think, I think my co-founders and I have kind Absolutely. of settled into it.
1: Uh, hopefully, a good challenge that 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 uh like, All right, let's roll Absolutely. up our sleeves if you had to think of lessons learned from the first fifteen years that are pivotal in in playing a role you're applying now in your second, what would that be
0: um you know I think one of the things that made us successful in the last business is how closely we worked with customers um you know we from day I, and that was by necessity. A 19-year-old kid studying electrical engineering doesn't know anything about how dispatch centers or sheriff's offices run. I, you know, at least I didn't. And um, all of a sudden, I needed to know how you classify who goes into which jail cell in jails in South Carolina, right? Like, so I had no idea about that market. And as a result, we were forced to get with our customers from from day one. Like, there was just no other option. It's not like we were geniuses to do it. We didn't have a choice. We didn't know anything. And I, and I think, you know, I realized along the way, just how fortunate it was that it worked that way. You know, I think we spent so much time with our customers in that first, probably five years of that previous business that we, we were just so embedded in the way they think. And the product was just so wrapped around the way they see their day to day, I guess, that I, I think I will always carry with me like just how valuable that was. And so of course in this business, and at this point, that's, I mean, it's common knowledge that that's what you ought to do. I just think I, I think it it was it was so visceral to me, I guess, that you know, in this in in this next business, we've spent we've spent a ton of time with customers. And and I think even though to some extent we're to some extent our past selves are our own customer, I think we've done a pretty good job of of talking to folks that have different experiences and in some ways proving our, our own intuition wrong. Um, and, and I think that's been super valuable.
1: Dealing with competition, both from the, the first business and now with this one, mm-hmm. uh, how, how do you approach it? Do you pay attention? Do you ignore? You, you, uh, what's your process?
0: I mean, I think you have to pay attention to competition, but not let it distract you in any way. And I think that's impo- that's, that's like, I just stated an impossible thing to do. But um, you know, I think that's what you should aspire to, not just as an individual, but as a company. You know, I think it's a challenge in a startup or, or it's something that's just done delicately, I guess. To keep everybody aware of the market, especially in a market that's evolving as fast as, as ours is, to keep everybody aware of the market so they can make the right decisions in their day to day around you know the work that they're doing. How do you keep them apprised of the market, but not have them distracted by whatever Acme Inc. released three days ago that maybe does or maybe doesn't make a difference? And so you know, I think I think it's a delicate balance. There are certainly some competitors that we pay more attention to than others because we respect them more. Is the truth? Um, you know, there are some competitors that we for better or for worse, mostly ignore because we think you know for some reason or another they're just on a different course than we are. Um, but I think you have to find a happy medium. Um, you have to find a way not to let it distract you, but to still stay kind of on the pulse of the market. And you know, all of that said, I think much of what you learn from competitors is actually about your customers or uh, their customers. Perhaps you know where, if if you're smart about it, you can you can understand what they're doing in the context of why they're doing it, and provided they're a company you respect. You can assume they're doing it because they're getting customer signals that it's the right thing to do, and I think I think in that way, watching customers can be really beneficial because I think it can magnify your exposure to the market, especially in the very early days where you're not talking to a hundred prospects a week you know I mean you're 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 a much smaller organization, and I think I think you can use your competitors to leverage your your signals.
1: How do you tell uh, when a competitor is doing something and you're like, well, they must be doing that because there is an interest from from the customer base, versus they're just trying something, and and, and you don't know if it's successful or not. Is there any indicators or something you look for?
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, th- there's probably no silver bullet there. Um, you know, I think things that are are big investments are likely are more likely to not be random experiments done by some little group somewhere. And so, I think if you see some, you know, some big investment that's either being done or has been done. Then there's likely a you know a pretty reasonable market reason to have done that. And at that point, then you have to suss out was that for the same kind of customer that we're working with. You know, in you know, because we're we're focused specifically on serving software companies, much of our competition actually has a broader focus. They maybe do that with some part of their product or some amount of their time, but but they spend maybe most of their time or a lot of their time serving enterprises, integrating their own things, like I explained at the beginning. And so. At that point, then you have to tease out, you know, we don't want want to make a mistake here and think that just because they built it, we should, because they may have built it for a completely different persona than we even have. Um, And honestly, I'm sure we get that wrong as we try to perceive it sometimes. And I don't know, at the end of the day, you pay attention to customers and try not to let it distract you too much.
1: I, I actually, we actually have interviewed a few folks in the iPad space before, but they, they are in that exact space of internal integration, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's valuable to, you come back to your customer, are they truly serving your, your niche uh, customer of, right. um, and what your approach of, uh, of that is for you? I'm also fascinated because we also have a lot of um, business leaders that that listen to this series is just how you manage your time your life uh, I think you said you have you have a, a six-year-old like you have kids married then uh, I'm married and I have three kids six eight and ten okay <laughs> so balancing um, growing a business selling it and then um, starting a new one um, easy did you, did you did you find that right balance already with your first company
0: uh, no <laughs> um, you know by the time I had kids with my uh, with my first company, you know, we were in the we were in the midst of nationwide growth. Um, you know, I traveled uh, something like 180 days uh, for a couple years there. Um, you know, it was a it was just a crazy time, and so you know, of course, I was around as much as I could be, and it's not like I was just you know absent. But I, I'm not sure I could necessarily say. That there was what would be commonly considered balance. Um, you know, we were owned by private equity for the last three years I was there, and then and then sold to more private equity to different private equity. And so, you know, that's a that's a whole experience. I actually had a very positive experience with all of that, but but that's a I mean, that's a game in and of itself, or a you know a, a set of work in and of itself. And so, I was super busy, super spread thin, and and that that kind of is probably just the way it was it was going to be. And so, I took some time off after selling that business. Um, which was great and you know spent some time at home and did all the things the projects that you put off for years and you know some of that and got itchy pretty fast i guess to get back into it i think um you know it's it's all i've known since i was 19 years old and it's what i love to do and so um we you know a couple couple of my two co-founders who are people that i worked in the last business with you know we somehow or another kind of uh you know got it in our heads that like we're stuck on this problem and we can do something about it and I don't know. Before I knew it, we we suddenly had a company again. So, you know, as far as, as far as finding balance this time, you know, I don't think I don't think you start a startup saying you know I'm doing this because I want to work as little as possible. Like I, I don't I don't if, if you do, you're you have a different experience, I guess, than maybe I I have either time. So you know, there's no question that we're 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 working hard. Where you know that the the whole team is. Is is pulling hard. We're, we're defining a category right now. We're defining a, a new segment of a market, and um, you know, and there's just a ton of exciting work to do. Um, that said, you know, of course, as my kids get older, and uh, you know, I probably have some perspective I didn't have uh, ten years ago. Um, you know, you you find balance, but I I am the last guy to ask what the silver bullet for work life balance is because I think uh, I think I have certainly I've certainly been spread thin before.
1: <laughs> what, what did your wife say when you when you said, "All right, I'm starting my next one." I think she just assumed it was what, what I would do.
0: I, I think, it was um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. you know, she's, I'm super fortunate to have, uh, you know, been married for a long time. She, she was, you know, we were, we were together through the whole last company, um, got married somewhere along the way. And, um, I think she, she probably has a better perspective on a lot of it than I do. Uh, you know, having, having kind of, kind of watched and she's uh, an amazing support.
1: Coming to this concept, you, you mentioned a second ago about defining a a, a whole new category in an mm-hmm. industry. Um, there are several different startups and tech companies that are trying that. Um, and it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any early lessons learned when it comes to this? I mean, it might be too soon <laughs> to yeah. be able to, to, to realize that, but well, let's look at it a different way. Is there any hurdles that you didn't expect and now they're here and you're like, wow, I didn't expect this one.
0: Uh, you know, I mean, at the, at the most basic level, I think when we started, we didn't, we didn't know how hard it was going to be to explain to the market why embedded iPass was different in important ways. You know, I think iPass was an established term and it's a term that historically and still today largely means enterprises integrating their own things, right? And so, you know, just figuring out the words to use to talk to people was hard. And we spent the first year and a half having conversations where it was just like, you know, words just going right over people's head and right by them and us not understanding them and then them not understanding us. And, you know, I think that's part of the customer discovery process is just spend a ton of time with customers and in the market and with prospects and and learn how to explain to people the way you see the world that may or may not align with the way they see the world. And I think the truth is for the first year, we were so bad at talking about it that, you know, we, we just needed to learn a lot. And so I, I think that was maybe where I determined that that we were in a lot of ways probably defining a new category. You know, it's not like we set off on day one and said we are here to define a new category. Like I think, I think we kind of learned along the way. Although we're part of the IPASS space and that will always be true, we're a we're a sub segment of it. And and you know, and although we're certainly not the only people that understand that segment, I think we have a unique perspective on it. And in that way, I think we have a important role to play as as the market kind of decides how how that should how that should
1: work. So you found any good tactics on communicating the difference because you say it's all about the words mm-hmm. um, is there a way that you a tactic that's worked well so far in, in communicating those differentiating words?
0: It's a good question I think um, I think we just got better at I think we just got better at being really concise at stating the problem, which is which is in some ways easier when you're dealing with people who Share the problem, you know, because you have a pretty, you know, you have a shared vocabulary, you have a shared, you know, set of experiences that you can refer to. But I think we got a lot better at very concisely defining the problem in a way that makes them understand, oh, we have that problem too. And maybe we didn't even recognize it as a problem because we just took it as the way the world is, Um, you know. But, but once you, I think we got better at describing that as a problem that people understood as a problem. And then it became much easier, obviously, to discuss the. And here's our viewpoint on what a solution should look like. Um, then that almost becomes the easier part. But I think, I think helping people identify that this is a problem is kind of a, a bigger picture problem um, was probably a, the, you know, the biggest thing that we overcame.
1: Uh, taking a step back, looking at the future of, of integration and integration tools and uh, in, uh Embedded uh, iPass? Embedded iPass, yeah. Uh, what, what would you predict? If you just like look down three, five years from now, what, what, what's it going to look like and where are you guys going to be?
0: I think there's no question that software companies a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, will increasingly rely on platforms like Prismatic to build and deploy their integrations. I, I think... I mean, I should, probably shouldn't say this, but I think that's true with Prismatic or without Prismatic. I think that is a, I think the market is moving that way. I think it's just the right thing for software companies. And so I think it's it's just naturally going to happen. Now, I think, I think Prismatic is in a really interesting place because I think we have a, a, a pretty unique perspective, I guess, due to all of our experience and due to kind of the way we approached the problem two or three years ago. I think we have a really valuable part to play in defining what the solution there looks like. I think mm-hmm. companies are going to rely on platforms. I think how well those platforms serve them is a bit of a, you know, bit of an open issue as the market develops and I think we have an important role to play in in shaping that. I guess the way we we see it, you know, the
1: way we believe that it should develop. Mm-hmm. You see the the way they will be integrated changing in the future like it just at the the technology level of how software talks to each other, is it ever going to become easier or change?
0: You know, I think, I think, yes, it will get easier. And then some other things will probably make it harder. You know, I mean, we, we increasingly are relying on REST APIs or GraphQL APIs. We've we've at least started to standardize on those technologies. Now, everybody's definition of rest seems a little bit different and and whatever so it's not like this is a a utopia but but i mean certainly we're coming coming to a place of standards with modern new software you know the same could be said for for data formats i mean we're we're a lot of the world is pretty standardized on json at this point um you know you certainly have plenty of xml in the world as well but you know we're you're, you're, we're getting to where we've got some some standards i guess with the way all of that's working and there's no question that that makes integration's easier to build. And I think you're gonna continue seeing trends like that. I think I think companies will get better at building good REST APIs. I think GraphQL has an important part to play with certain kinds of data sets or certain kinds of APIs. Um, I think it can be very advantageous. The Prismatic API internally is built on GraphQL and it's been a really good thing for us and our customers. Um, so I, yeah, I think I think technology is constantly marching forward and solving the problems large and small um, you know, kind of up and down the the technology stack that relates to integrations. However, I think at the same exact time that that's happening, other things fly out fly in from you know left field that that, that none of us are certainly that I can't predict. You know I think I think there is a proliferation of b two b software that is unprecedented. and I think by definition, that means integrations are going to be in a more and more important part in in this whole thing. So I think even though they may be getting easier, I think everybody's going to be building more of them. I think customer expectations are getting higher uh, around security and compliance and uptime and and functionality of integrations. And so I think just as fast as they get easier by solving some of the like technical problems, expectations get higher and other technical things become problems. And you know I, I think I think it will be a battle forever.
1: Well, if you are looking for an embedded iPaaS solution, you're going to head over to prismatic.io. That's prismatic, P-R-I-S-M-A-T-I-C cio I-O. Thank you, Michael, for being on the series. It was great to have you, man. Yeah, thank you. And we'll see you all on the next episode of Uptech Report. Have you seen a company using AI, machine learning, or other technology to transform the way we live, work, and do business? Go to uptechreport.com and let us know.